welcome to Labour Days, a podcast about trade union issues and labour history. We're all obviously still in lockdown and still dealing with the very difficult uh, COVID-19 situation at the moment. Uh, So we thought that we'd uh, give everyone a bit of a break from that. We will come back to it towards the end of the episode and in future episodes. But um, we've called this episode Three Strikes and Out because the three of us, uh, myself, Daniel and Ellie, uh, we're each going to take a strike that is um, perhaps not quite as well known as uh, some of the stuff we might talk about. Um, something a bit interesting that has a bit of a unique angle to it. Uh, we're each going to sort of run through uh, the story of those strikes, and um, and then, as I say at the end, we'll uh, we'll uh, give you a couple of updates about the uh, COVID nineteen situation and uh, how it relates to the trade unions as well. Um, so Daniel's going to talk about uh, what is usually regarded as uh, the first strike in history uh, in ancient Egypt. Uh, Ellie's going to talk about a strike of uh, Hadia Shawnee uh, women, um, a strike of domestic labour. Uh, and I'm going to talk about what is uh, regarded as being uh, the first strike in a workplace off the surface of the earth in space. Uh, so without further ado, uh, I'll hand off to Daniel to talk about the first ever strike in human history. Hi, it's Daniel here. Uh, thanks to Ed for what I'm sure is a excellent uh, link he's just given me in his introduction. Um, the strike I've chosen to talk about is one from Egypt, from around 1157 BCE. So that's 3,177 years ago, I think. I'm pretty bad at math, so I may have uh, miscalculated. Um, It was a strike of artisan labourers who were working on building tombs in the famous Valley of the Kings during the reign of Ramses III. And I've chosen to talk about this strike because it has a very particular distinction. It's the first known strike in recorded history. What we know about the strike comes to us from uh, contemporary records from the scribe Amanakht, Uh, And apologies to any Egyptologists listening if I'm mispronouncing that, which I almost certainly am. Um, And their account of the strike is recorded on a papyrus that's held by the Museo Egizio, or Egizio possibly again, apologies for mangling that language as well, in Turin in Italy. So in my slot on today's episode, I'll give a brief and fairly basic account of the strike uh, and highlight what I think are a few notable features um, beyond obviously the fact that it is, as I say, the first strike in history. Um, so the workers involved were, um, I think we can we can safely say, highly skilled um, artisan labourers responsible for both the construction and decoration of what were to be uh, royal tombs. And they lived in uh, Deir el Medina, which was a village built for the specific purpose of housing workers working on the tombs. So we can maybe think of that as a kind of ancient equivalent of a company town. Um, Recent archaeological research has suggested that the acutely steep climbs that workers often had to make as part of their work gave many of them osteoarthritis, and that's um, research that's been done on analysing the bones um, of uh, of these workers. So they were clearly engaged in um, difficult, back-breaking work. And I think we must assume that their action took a significant amount of personal courage, given that their ultimate employer was a royal ruling class, regarded um, as all monarchies were really until the, until the bourgeois revolutions of the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries um, as essentially godly and imbued with divine power. 
The Valley of the Kings, also known as the Valley of the Tombs, was used as the entombment site for the royal figures of uh, Pharaonic Egypt and ver various associated nobles for around 500 years. It's now a major World Heritage tourism site. So I think the first thing that we should take from the strike is to remember that um, while the architectural wonders of the ancient world are often thought of as being somehow built or created by the rulers of ancient societies, they were in fact products of exploited labour. And that's something we should bear in mind when we think about major construction projects today. It's the same idea that's expressed in the words of the great labour movement hymn, Solidarity Forever. I'm sure you all know the verse, it is we who ploughed the prairies, built the cities where they trade, dug the mines, or we might substitute mines for tombs for the purposes of this story, and built the workshops, endless miles of railroad laid. Or, as Eugene V. Debs might have put it, if he'd have lived in ancient Egypt, we can dig and decorate the royal tombs without them, but they can't dig and decorate them without us. Um, now, the issue in the strike was essentially unpaid wages and rations, and it took place against the backdrop of significant economic hardship at the time due to recent military campaigns and failed harvests. As well as work stoppages, the workers employed the tactic of the sit-in, um, effectively staging occupations of um, tombs and temple sites. And what we can learn from this, I think, is that the most effective tactics kind of emerge from the logic of the production process itself. Um, withdrawing our labour from that process is the most basic form of resistance, and physically occupying the site of production or other work sites is a kind of a step up from that again. Um, as Leon Trotsky might have said about this strike if he'd been writing the transitional programme in 1157 BCE rather than the late 1930s, um, sit-down strikes go beyond the limits of normal procedure. Independently of the demands of the strikers, the temporary seizure of workplaces deals a blow to the idol of property. Every sit-down strike poses in a practical manner the question of who is the boss in the workplace, the employer, or the workers. Now, this is not to suggest that the striking artisans in ancient Egypt were engaged in a conscious struggle for workers' control over production, but the fact that their strike organically evolved in the direction of a sit-in shows how those effective tactics emerge, as I say, from the logic of how production itself is organised. And it might even be said, um, with the pun very much intended, that any mechanism of exploitation has the potential to create its own gravedigger. Um, after the first phase of strikes taking place over the course of several days, a delegation of strikers met with the local chief of police and the state bureaucrat managing their work sites and delivered the following statement. The prospect of hunger and thirst has driven us to this. There is no clothing, there is no ointment, there is no fish, there are no vegetables. Send to Pharaoh our good lord about it and send to the vizier our superior that we may be supplied with provisions. Now that's pretty sharp and clear. I think you'll agree. And something we've noted more than once on this podcast is the lamentable contemporary phenomenon of the strike without demands, a strike that presents itself as being aimed at something like getting the employer back around the table rather than aiming to win a particular concrete concession or series of concessions or demands or improvements. Um, that lack of clarity and focus was not a mistake that the striking uh, artisan labourers in ancient Egypt made. Uh, and they won. The papyrus records that after these demands were issued, the ration of the first month of winter was issued to them on this day. Um, several further phases of action followed, again resulting in concessions when rations were provided. So we've got clear demands, pursued via strategic action, getting results. These strikers got it right first time, so we've got no excuse for deviating 
from their example. Um, I think there's also an interesting discussion to be had around this strike in terms of its significance in the wider socio-economic context of Egypt at the time uh, and the role of the pharaonic state, which we can see from the references in the papyrus to the chief of police and various state bureaucrats. And, and that was clearly a factor. That's probably a discussion for another time and probably one that ought to be led by somebody better versed in this topic than I am. Um, some of that context can be found in Joshua J. Mark's article, The First Strike in Labour History, which is on the Ancient History Encyclopedia website. Um, that article suggests that the contemporary cultural and ideological impact of the strike, which disrupted the dominant ideology of well-ordered social harmony being maintained through strict hierarchies, was key to its success. Um, Joshua Mark suggests that the very fact of workers daring to act in this way was so uh, kind of radically disruptive that their employers couldn't conceive of any way to respond other than by giving them at least some of what they wanted. Now, although the dominant ideology and social structures of our time are very different to those of uh, Egypt in this period, there might be a lesson for us somewhere in that too. Um, I'll summarise and conclude by, by saying that I chose this strike to talk about really for three reasons. One, uh, as I mentioned right at the top, the sheer trivia of it being the first recorded strike ever. Two, for the basic reminders about sort of nuts and bolts stuff around having clear demands and using um, effective tactics. And three, because it's a clear demonstration that contrary to popular historical views that might see the infrastructure and value of a civilization, either ancient or modern, as the product of its rulers, it's exploited human labour that actually farms the field, creates the value, or builds the tomb. This strike acts as proof of an old adage that some wise men once wrote in a good book, that the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggle. I'll end with a quick note on my sources. Um, info about the strike and the, and the uh, contents of the papyrus is pretty readily available on the internet. Um, my main source for this segment was Paul J. Franson's tra translations, which were published in Editing Reality, the Turin Strike Papyrus, which was in Volume 1 of the Studies in Egyptology Journal, edited by uh, Sarah Israelit Grohl, and published by the Magnus Press at Hebrew University in Israel in 1990. Um, I used the translations that were excerpted with an introduction from the Little Egyptologist blog uh, that's published in a post on the Libcom website. Um, I also used articles from the academic Edith Hall's blog and from the Diana Booger blog, again apologies if I'm mispronouncing that, and an article by Gary Shaw from sciencemag.org um, that talks about some of the, the contemporary research um, and uh, the detail about these workers developing osteoarthritis. So thanks to all of those writers, and we'll put links to um, the articles I've referenced here um, in the episode description. So that's all from me this time. Um, solidarity to everyone listening. Um, stay safe, stay well. And I'm now going to hand over to um, Ellie, uh, who's going to talk to you about the strike that she's chosen. Today, I'm going to talk about a strike that is commonly referred to as the Iroquois Women's Strike. However, I want to point out before starting that the Iroquois Confederation is a name that was invented by French colonisers to describe a group of native North American tribes. And actually, these Native Americans call themselves the Haudenosaunee people. You may also have heard of them being referred to as the Six Nations, as this is the name that was given to them by the English. 
Iroquois, unfortunately, is the name you'll find most commonly written down, both historically and currently. However, in the spirit of accuracy and sensitivity, I'm going to call them the Haudenosaunee people, as this is the name they have chosen for themselves. Before I get into the story properly, I would like to make a couple of disclaimers. Firstly, as I'm sure you can tell, I am English, and native North American languages are not ones I'm familiar with at all. Also, I'm certainly not a specialist in native North American history or culture. I have researched this episode, however, there may be things I get wrong or pronounce badly. Apologies if that does happen, it's in no way my aim to be dismissive or disrespectful about this culture or history. And finally, when I was researching for this episode, I came across this story and thought it was both interesting and pretty unknown, so I've decided to tell it. However, a large part of this story focuses on women withholding sex as a tactic, so I just wanted to make it really clear that neither I nor anybody else at Labour Days is advocating for sex strikes as a tactic in the modern age. We are merely highlighting a little-known, historically interesting story. Anyway, with all that out of the way, let's get to the meat. The Haudenosaunee people are a league of native tribes from the northeastern part of America and parts of Canada. The league was originally made up of five tribes. The Cayuga, the Onondaga, the Mohawk, the Seneca and the Oneida. Then, later on in the 1700s, the Tuscarora tribe also joined the confederacy. At its height, Haudenosaunee power extended into present-day Canada, westward along the Great Lakes and down both sides of the Allegheny Mountains, into present-day Virginia and Kentucky and into the Ohio Valley. The original Haudenosaunee League occupied large areas of present-day New York State, up to the St. Lawrence River, west of the Hudson River and south into northwestern Pennsylvania. The Haudenosaunee people were governed by an all-male council, made up of a number of delegates from each tribe. However, the members of the Grand Council were chosen by the mothers of each clan, and if any leader failed to comply with the wishes of the women of his tribe, the mothers of the clan could demote him. During the 1600s, the Haudenosaunee engaged regularly in warfare with many other Native American tribes outside of the League. Haudenosaunee women, who were sick of constant, unregulated war, decided they needed to hold more power over the question of war and peace. In Haudenosaunee society, women controlled all aspects of reproduction. Bloodlines were traced through mothers, inheritance was passed between females, and women were seen to hold the secret of birth. For a week during labour and after, only women were allowed near a new mother and baby. So for their first tactic, Haudenosaunee women decided to exercise their power by abstaining completely from the reproductive process, refusing to have sex and bear children for the tribes. Haudenosaunee women also had sole responsibility for planting and cultivating crops and preparing meals, not to mention making essential items such as baskets, pottery, clothing and storage items. So the next phase of the action saw the tribe's women restrict the warriors' access to essential supplies, such as dried corn and moccasins. The Grand Council may have been able to declare war, but warriors couldn't fight without supplies. Although not much information has survived about the ins and outs of the struggle, it is known that eventually the Grand Council gave in to the women's demands and they won the right to veto all wars. 
Whilst it isn't entirely clear to me from my research when and how Haudenosaunee women gained other powers, what is also clear from English and French accounts is that Haudenosaunee women held significant power in their society. In 1855, Minnie Martle observed that no Haudenosaunee treaty was binding unless it was ratified by 75% of the male voters and 75% of the mothers of the nation. And when changing council law, the consent of two-thirds of the mothers was required. Women also had the right to divorce in Haudenosaunee society. In 1848, when the Quaker, abolitionist and women's rights activist Lucretia Mott visited the Seneca tribe, she saw women participating in matters of family, spirituality and government. Seneca women were deeply involved in the decision of whether or not to drop their traditional clan system of government and instead adopt the constitutional form insisted upon by the Quakers. In the end, the constitutional model was accepted. However, the Seneca tribe flatly refused to accept the Christian law of male dominance. Instead, writing into their constitution that no treaty would be valid without the approval of three-fourths of the mothers of the nation. Inspired by this, Mott travelled to Seneca Falls in western New York, where, along with a friend, she planned and held the first ever women's rights convention in the US. This Seneca Falls convention is widely credited with launching the women's suffrage movement in America. So there you have it, the story of the first ever recorded case of feminist direct action in America. Next, we'll be hearing from Ed, the brain muscle, about a strike in space. Thanks, uh, Ellie and Daniel. I'm going to bring us uh, a bit more up to date with uh, the story of the first strike in space. It occurred on December 28, 1973, when three astronauts on the US Skylab space station uh, staged a work stoppage. Gerald Carr, Edward Gibson and William Pogue um, stopped radio contact with NASA for a full Earth orbit, so that's about 90 minutes. Now, there's some uh, there's some debate as to whether that was a deliberate action, but what we do know is that they, they essentially staged a one-day strike. Um, how do you strike in space, you might ask? Well, Skylab was one of the first attempts, maybe the first attempt, to uh, see whether people could live in space for... Uh, extended periods of time and the Skylab 4 mission that these three guys were on was an 84-day mission which at the time was the longest ever. Um, Skylab was about to be decommissioned so what NASA had done is they'd packed these guys work schedule because obviously you don't just spend your time on the space station floating around you doing uh, spacewalks you're undertaking uh, experiments and all the rest of it they packed these guys uh, work schedule an unreasonable amount um space labor uh, was and presumably still is valued at sort of millions of dollars an hour in terms of if you think about the uh, the knowledge that's gained uh, about various uh, various things about how things behave in space how people behave in space and the potential implications for that it's very valuable labor and of course very skilled um on skylab the the sort of days were regimented to to the minute you know nasa had this uh, schedule that the guys were expected to uh, adhere to uh, and it involved essentially doing 16 hours of work and having one day in 10 off 
now the schedule had been so packed that the guys weren't even getting their day off because they were behind on the work that they were supposed to do. So um, about halfway through the mission, they decided to just take one of their days off. Um, and having done that, having spent the day sort of relaxing, enjoying the views of Earth and uh, and uh, just sort of doing what they wanted, they then entered a negotiation with uh, Mission Control on the ground. Um, they won the right to uh, meal breaks and evenings off and they changed the structure of the days of the work so that they just had a, a to-do list of tasks rather than a kind of uh, this sort of Victorian factory system of like minute by minute you must be doing this particular task. Um, the incident is uh, credited uh, by some as sort of changing the way that NASA behaved towards their crews, viewing them essentially less as sort of scientific instruments and more as uh, living human beings. Um, in fact, uh, Colonel Pogue, one of the guys, said the flight made him much more inclined towards a humanistic view of other people. Uh, I tried to put myself in the human situation instead of trying to operate like a machine. Um, the three guys themselves uh, never flew a space flight again, and uh, now that might well be a coincidence, or possibly it isn't, who knows. Um, but it's it's kind of an interesting one, because if we think about the kind of future of space flight, even the present, it's more and more coming under the sort of purview of the private sector, of uh, particularly of uh, sort of super rich multi-billionaires who have money to play with and are, and are developing kind of private enterprises with a view of going into space and that extension of the private sector into space will also extend the labor market the workforce the working day however you measure that when you're in space so as and when sort of space labor becomes a more common thing which i think we can probably assume that at some point it will not wanting to get all sci-fi but it's a reasonable assumption i think it will raise the question of you know are those people workers like nasa astronauts sort of on workers because they're in this sort of quasi-military agency they tend to have come from the military they've got military ranks a lot of the time but you know if you're just working for elon musk or jeff bezos's uh, private sector space agency you're going to be a worker with a contract one would assume and you know what what workers rights are you subject to when you're orbiting the earth so all that is going to be stuff that sort of comes into play when uh, when this stuff gets more common in the future and sort of thinking back to daniel's strike that he was talking about it's a sort of nice bookend that you know as, as he said for as long as there is a class structure in human society for as long as there is one class that lives off the labor of another then there's going to be resistance to that and there's going to be class conflict and there's going to be struggle so even looking into the future when uh, you know we've all we're all living on moon bases and all the rest of it 
it's not going to be a utopia it's going to be another site of plasterable and uh, and perhaps in its own way the skylab controversy will be seen to be a kind of precursor to all that so there you go three strikes that you were uh, probably hadn't heard of uh, we ourselves hadn't heard of them uh, until very recently when we started researching them um just uh, yeah to go back to current events and the, and the corona crisis um you'll want to check out uh, safeandequal.org that's a campaign uh, for full pay for self-isolating workers uh, not just sort of frontline health staff but uh, people in all sorts of sectors um and uh, campaigning against the sort of uh, uh, premature uh, reopening of uh, workplaces when it uh, may well still be unsafe. Uh, so check out uh, safeandequal.org and there are other um, uh, campaigns going on. There are, of course, petitions doing the rounds about um, the inadequacy of uh, uh, PPE for uh, health workers and other workers. So, uh, yeah, do, do check all that out. Um, I know for a fact that all the support that people are showing for uh, health workers and, and others is is really appreciated. So uh, thanks for everything that you're doing, although it might seem like it's not much because we're all stuck at home. It all it all does help. So uh, yeah, we'll have uh, we'll have more on the pandemic crisis in our next episode. But uh, for now, stay safe and well, and uh, we'll see you next time. Labor Days was presented by Ed Mustill, Daniel Randall and Ellie Clark. Additional research was provided by Holly Smith and the producer was Liam McNulty. Download Labor Days wherever you get your podcasts and remember to subscribe and leave a review. Follow Labor Days on all your favourite social media platforms, Labor Days on Facebook and at Labor underscore Days on Twitter.